Sorry for the coughing. I just had dinner. When I get full of food, I get full of ideas <laughs> and full of hot air. And here I go. I figured out how levitation works on the presumption that well, it, well let's call it a hypothesis. All right. <clears throat> so, will will blah, 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 blah. William Line tells us in his various books how it comes about. But that's um, only part of the story, as it turns out. You, it's not enough information, what he tells us, to make it happen. The, because that's the result. But what's the cause will make all the difference between success and failure. So, the thing... <clears throat> one more piece of the puzzle that's missing, not all of the pieces, but one more, is a patent that was assigned to the U.S. Navy by the individual uh, who, um, in whose name the patent is. It was 2018. I have it on my website, vinyasi.info, somewhere. It's probably, um, gee, let me guess. <laughs> it could be any number of places I put it. I'll, I'll hunt it and put it in the link in the description of this um, podcast. Okay, we'll leave it at that. <clears throat> so, in that... Um, patent the uh, the author of the patent um, describes one feature of that patent which is similar to Alfonso I believe uh, no that's not the name uh, there was another guy back in the 90s or actually back in the 50s who figured out how to make um, anti-gravity work and he did experiments and he validated it um what he did was he, I think that the description in his son's book, to his father's credit and name, homage, um, that he reduced the effort it takes to neutra- uh, to escape gravity or, or the impact that gravity has so that uh, you could blow, you know, and make yourself float. I mean, it, it's... It, that, that's the kind of thing I think... But he used microwaves to do it. Okay, now the patent that I'm describing does describe the use of microwaves, which is, to me, like silly. Why would you want to monkey with something that's going to risk uh, frying yourself? Be that as it may. <clears throat> it has uh, a shell within a shell. And the microwaves bounce in between the exterior shell and the interior shell. And, of course, the occupants are inside the interior shell, whereas the microwaves are exterior to the interior shell and inside the exterior shell. So it's like having a double wall construction in a building. You know, you've got the outer wall, you the inner wall, and the insulation between. So the microwaves is the insulation. The outer wall is the outer shell of the craft, and the inner wall is the inner shell of the craft, and inside both walls is the occupants. And I understand I've read somewhere dressed in aluminum, of all things, uh, aluminum uh, clothing. I guess to ground out any electrostatic charge. It's probably similar to what the linemen wear when they work on lines, especially live wires that have been fallen in the wind or snow, uh, to help... Uh, create a, a kind of a what do they call it um, uh, a, a skin effect 
to create an artificial skin effect so that the electricity passes over the body, not through the body. Actually, uh, people who do light shows with Tesla coils and they stand there and get themselves zapped, they wear the same clothing. So I think it's similar to that or it might be exactly the same. Anyway, <clears throat> so the patent says by rotating a magnetic field and oscillating it mechanically, mechanical oscillation along its spin axis in a reciprocating fashion, that produces iner uh, neutralization of gravity and inertia. That's exactly what William Line describes will be the result. Now, why do I say this? Eric Dollard and Peter Lindemann had a group chat one time, and they videotaped it for us. And they said something that was already uh, kind of, I don't know. It, it, they said something, no, it was not already in my brain. But they taught me something that other people on the Internet have already described. So they weren't describing anything new, but it's not something you hear very often, so it's worth repeating. That a sine wave is a two-dimensional view from the side of what in three dimensions is a helical um, waveform. So basically, a screw, you know, like um, uh, the teeth of a wood screw. When you look at it and examine it, it's a helix, okay? DNA is a double helix, all right? <clears throat> so, um, if you imagine in your brain, okay, I'm asking you to become a simulator for the point of this discussion because this is a recording, an audio recording, it's not visual. So imagine, if you will, a spinning disc, nice and slow, not fast, and you reciprocate it along its spin axis, and you pick a point um, on the circumference of that disc and mark it. And then as it spins, it marks out a trail in space. You have it emit something, I don't know, <laughs> pixie dust, I don't know, something to create a trail, a comet trail behind it. <clears throat> and as it spins, nice and slow, it's also reciprocating, not too lengthy, along its spin axis, okay? That's going to describe a, helic, a, hel a helical pathway, and it's going to be oscillating as well. An AC oscillation, as well as being a sine wave. Isn't that what William Lyons said neutralizes gravity and inertia? Exactly what he said. But he said something else. It's not the whole story. <laughs> and don't patents leave out things? Well, they left out the other part of the story that William Lyons describes. You use AC in front of the craft in your direction of mo motion, and you use DC behind the craft to neutralize what you had created, because if you don't, uh, your craft, I think, gets pulled apart or something. <laughs> it, it, You won't like the... I, I forget what he said the consequences were, but you, you wouldn't want them to happen. Let's put it that way. It's not something you'd want to have happen. So, um, or maybe you just don't move. You know, maybe it, it, the, the AC uh, part in front actualizes or potentizes or, excuse me, potentizes while the DC behind actualizes and, and com 
by completing the process. And unless you complete the process, you don't get any movement. I think that's what the actual description is. I'm not sure. (laughs) Be that as it may. (coughs) Sorry. I'm dying. What can I say? (laughs) Of lung disease. Um, (coughs) Or else it's cardiovascular problems. Who knows what it is? So um, I did take a cayenne capsule, but I I want to keep it to one. I don't want to burn my belly. I want to be moderate here. Okay. So that's what's missing from the patent. But what's also missing from William Lyne's description is how to create that AC wave in space. Because remember now, a UFO does not have coils to energize. It has coils or whatever it has, it has, but it's it may not be coils. It may be disks. And they may be homopolar, now that I think of it. Yeah, it would take a homopolar disk to create that AC wave in space by doing what I described, rotating in one direction only, DC, but reciprocating it along its spin axis. That makes it a homopolar generator or a homopolar motor, if you prefer. That's interesting. That's fascinating. Isn't that what's inside an electromechanical water meter? Duh. (laughs) And it's aluminum? And isn't that what Searle, S-E-A-R-L-E, originally described back in the 50s how he made his discs spin in the first place and then he changed his tune and said, oh, it was electromagnetics. No, because uh, Joseph Cather, I think his name is Cather, Cather, wrote a book, a couple of books, and he he stated flatly how Searle did it. And it's not the way Searle is saying he did it nowadays, how he did it in the past, in the 50s, I think it was. But it... Um, so I'm I'm willing to suspect that um, Searle, uh, you know, cha- started lying, you know, twisting the truth around to hide the... F- he didn't want people to go out and do it. Maybe he was threatened. Who knows? What Searle did was he took an aluminum frame like balsa wood, really lightweight. And he stretched across at top... He made it in the, made it such that when he stretched across it, <clears throat> it's like how you make wings or, or airplanes, model airplanes. My brother did this when I was a child. This was, you know, back in the 60s. You, may, you have this kit of balsa wood and you push out the pieces that are pre-formed, pre-cut. You push them out of the, uh, the square rectangular... Um, you know, pieces, they're, you know, like die cut or something, like a cookie die cutter. It cuts out most of it, but not all of it. And so you push it out, and you, with glue, you assemble it, and then over this, over that, you put like a tissue paper that you, that comes with the kit, I think. And that covers, and then you shellac it with shellac, and then you paint it, and you've got your model plane. <clears throat> so what you have are your struts, that are perpendicular to the surface of the wing, and you and they're spaced out, and they're um, um, supported by a spinal piece that keeps them all lined up in parallel with each other. And then you stretch your your um, tissue paper across the edges of those struts so that it creates a nice curved surface to the top of your wing and flatness to the bottom of your wing, so it looks like an authentic wing, but in a model balsa wood format. So, this is what Searle did. He created 
a lightweight, I don't know if he used balsa wood, but he used lightweight wood and very thin construction because he was only stretching very thin veneer of mylar, which is aluminum foil. Uh, not the foil you buy in the store, but uh, it's a type of uh, aluminum foil that's very thin. They make space blankets, they call them for campers. Emergency uh, uh, blankets, you whip them out of your pocket and you can get into it in case you're caught on a windy slope and waiting for rescuers or whatever, or sitting through a storm. So he stretched that across the surface, and it's it, so his uh, f- uh, his wooden frame caused that stretched film to be in the shape of a saucer, basically, uh, like two pie tins, you know, one uh, uh, put together, uh, uh, to, uh, creating two convex surfaces on the outside. And he had an axle in there, <clears throat> a sturdy axle. Um, and then it was not an axle, it was a pipe. Now, and then it sat, he, he passed, he put it on top of and through a spindle, and which had a base plate to keep it from falling all the way through, and that rested on top of a gasoline-fired engine, which was strapped to the ground to prevent it from rotating, and... He pulled the whipcord and got the engine going, and this started. Things started to spin, and as it picked up speed, it eventually reached its uh, maximum RPM for that uh, engine, and was spinning like crazy. Well, lo and behold, he was creating an electrostatic field. It, he it, basically he he wasn't dumb. He took a Wimhurst machine, turned it on its side, and made it so that the thing could lift off the spindle if it so chose to. He had a hunch, and the hunch proved correct. Eventually, it lifted up off the spindle, but when, but not before it first sped up on its own. So the engine had already reached maximum RPM. <clears throat> but the craft started, and there must have been a slot on the spindle and on the um, the pipe inside the craft, you know, so they, it locks in place, you know, to be able to cause it to spin. So the craft started to impart torque, an assistive torque, as Jim Murray puts it. In other words, free energy feedback, over unity feedback, to the spindle. So now the engine is being um, dragged (laughs) at a higher RPM. It's being shoved and pushed and forced into a higher RPM than what it is designed to deliver. Well, this thing picks up speed as it is on its own, and then it starts to lift up off the spindle, and it hovers in space above their heads. You know, not too far, a few feet. And a funny thing happens while it's sitting there for several minutes. It picks up speed again. So it goes through these incremental adjustments of speed, each time spinning faster than before. And at that point, it took off out into uh, the sky, and they never saw it again. So, <clears throat> this is what we have with the spinning disk inside the electromechanical water meter. And this is what could happen if we have a spinning aluminum disk in a craft. Um, I don't know what microwaves have to do with it. Maybe they use microwaves to get it to spin, you know? That it could be. Maybe they have it in a magnetic... A ball bearing arrangement, a magnetic bearing arrangement. So instead of using ball bearings, they use magnets to float it 
uh, because it's aluminum, it's going to be lightweight, um, to uh, suspend it so that it's not uh, rubbing against anything, so it has like no friction and it's in a vacuum. Um, I remember <clears throat> this guy told us that they use two counter-rotating um, discs. Maybe that's true. Um, you have to use more than one anyway because of uh, balance. Uh, the thing will want to flip over. So you have to use three to fix it in two-dimensional space. Uh, you know, with, refer- with regard to the surface of the Earth, which is uh, tangential to the center of the Earth, which is the center of gravity. <laughs> so, I think this is the missing link. That's what's missing in William Lyne's description, in the patent assigned to the U.S. Navy. It's this thing that William, what William Lyne has to contribute, what the patent has to contribute, and what I have to contribute in terms of what's missing among those two to give my third uh, ingredient to the mix to complete the picture is how the AC wave gets formed is what the patent describes and um, William Lyne describes how to complete the process by having DC on the opposite side of the craft, the tail end. Um, What the patent does not describe. Now, William Lyne went a little bit further. He said that they were tubes of force. So, Projected out in front of the craft in the direction that you wish to travel is an AC tube of force, and then behind it, on the opposite side of the craft, is the DC tube of force to neutralize the AC that you had created. Um, So that means the AC is inside the craft, as well as out in front of it, because you've moved forward into that AC tube, causing the AC tube now in space to be where your craft is, rather than out in front of it. But in order to go any further, that's when you have to have DC projected out behind the craft so that when the AC tube continues to move backwards, um, either you're capable of moving forward at all, I suppose... No, you already moved forward. I guess it's to prevent to ripping apart the craft. I'm not sure, but I, I think that was the, the description because you already moved into the path that you created, which means it did get you to move. Okay. So, uh, that's my inspiration for this evening. Um, I thought I'd share it with you because it's pretty cool. I still don't understand gravity. You know, I went over some uh, posts, some blog posts on um, my friend's uh, uh, blog space on Quora, um, Electrical Universe, I think it's called. (laughs) I can't even remember what it's called. Um, Franco Bruno Cordelletti. And he talked about gravity, what it is. It's It's a... And it's... it's When I'm reading it now, what he's saying makes sense, but I still don't... You know, only in a general, broad sense do I grasp it. I still don't get it. And I made a comment to it, and my comment was so lengthy and detailed, and I'm reading through it, part of it. <laughs> I can't make heads or tails of what I'm saying. <laughs> I have no clue. I wrote it some time ago, and that's the way my brain works, you know. I get an inspiration, it comes through me, and it makes perfect sense at the time that I'm thinking it. And then months or years later, I have no clue what I said. Absolutely no clue. In many cases, <laughs> unless it's something regard to health, 
and I put it into practice, then I under, then I retain the understanding. But if I don't put it into practice, I l- completely lose sight of the understanding I had for that fleeting moment that I was t- describing it to you <laughs> one way or another, written or oral or whatever. video. I used to do video blogs. Now I do them as audio recordings. But re- regardless, um, it's always been this way since I was four years old. I, I have this access to this stream of consciousness that is not of me. And if I put it into practice, it becomes a lesson I learn, I gain, and I I grow thereby. But it's something I'll never forget because it's, I've made it personal. But if I don't make it personal, if I just share it with you, then, I, then it's the same as if I never got involved. Um, <clears throat> and I'll completely lose the opportunity after a very short period of time to even know what it was that went through me. Even though I recorded it, it won't make any sense. So it's it's not surprising that a lot of people are this way with everything I say because there's no uh, precedence for the stuff that comes out of my mouth. And so they don't know what heads, heads or tail to make of it. And that reminds me of people like me. I think it was Rudolf Steiner <clears throat> you know, it sounds so articulate and well-crafted, and, but so obtuse, like, what, what the hell was he talking about? Buckminster Fuller had a similar impact on me. Um, there are several of these guys, and they use their own vernacular to describe something that nobody else is talking about, and, and plus they do it in their own way, and so it makes it very difficult for the rest of us to figure out what they're talking about. And it's probably why Maharishi decided not to talk about the theory behind TM until he got people to experience it. Then he came out with the Science of Creative Intelligence, a 33-course lesson, um, talking about... And boy, I took it, like, after I'd been meditating for a year when I was a teenager. I I couldn't make heads or tails of it then, after only one year of meditating. And then I I took the course again. I sat in on uh, somebody giving the course... Um, um, it was like decades later or at least a decade later and it made perfect sense so it's really you never know how long it'll take to get something but at least it was because I was meditating I was having the experience so it just took time for my brain to organize you know it, it organize itself um, and nobody knows how long it'll take but it takes experience you have to get involved now, I'm not building anything, right? All I do is simulate stuff. Although it's true, I'm starting to build things haphazardly, uh, intermittently, I should say, um, at the moment, because that's about the only opportunities I get these days. Um, and I haven't had any ex- successes yet, which doesn't surprise me. Depressing, but <laughs> it does surprise me, because it takes time, you know? you got to get used to the new medium, and uh, the real world is a little different than the uh, artificial world of the simulator. Um, where everything is overly simplified and slanted one way or another, depending on the design of the software. Um, anyway, so it's it's not easy grappling with new ideas, especially tech, technical ones of a technical nature. It, it really, it, it doesn't make it any easier. It doesn't matter whether it's metaphysics or physics or electrical engineering. It's always difficult if it's out of the box, out of common sense. doesn't mean it's not true. You know, we like to think, oh, no, well, nobody else is saying that. It can't be true. Well, that's nonsense. It, there's no guarantee whether it's 
true or not true just because it's not common sense. No, there's no guarantees whatsoever about anything in life. But, you know, we it's easy to, to take the shortcut and say, oh, well, it's probably not true because nobody else is talking about it. <clears throat> that's, that's a cop-out is what it is. And I'm guilty of it. You know, we're all guilty of it to some degree. It's a shortcut cop-out to getting involved and finding out firsthand one way or another. And just because, as the expression goes, you get involved and it didn't work out doesn't mean it's not true. It just means you didn't learn anything. <laughs> you did everything wrong, you did nothing right, and you gained nothing except the knowledge of how not to do it next time. <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> As uh, a quote that little Charlie, the character Charlie in the first uh, Claus movie with Tim, uh, Tim Allen, he, you know, he plays Santa Claus, and Judd Law is uh, the stepfather to little Charlie, um, Tim Allen's son, uh, the character of Tim Allen's son, um, and it, the stepdaughter, uh, Law's um, character is a psychiatrist or a psychologist or something, and he's interviewing his little stepson, <clears throat> and he says, "Well, uh, d- uh, you know, how can you believe in Santa Claus if there's? Do you have any evidence? Uh, no. Then how can you believe blindly?" Uh, and so um, that little Charlie is uh, the, the, the screenwriter uh, put uh, very wise words into the child's mouth. He says, "Well, uh, have you ever seen a million dollars?" And <laughs> Judd Loth pauses. Well, I, I better make sure I'm, I give the right answer here. And then, and then he says, "No. Well, it doesn't mean it's it doesn't exist just because you've never seen a million dollars." And he's got a he's got a stepdad there in a corner. He <laughs> can't get backed out of that one. <laughs> <coughs> um anyway I think I've said enough <laughs>